250, Chapter 2 of Gulliver. Welcome to Craftlet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 50, Hippo Birdie. This week's episode is brought to you by Knit Circus, the e-newsletter that can arrive in your mailbox delivering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can sign up at www.knitcircus.com. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative. We publish books, not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? And Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. Well, hello, it is I, and I welcome you back to Chapter 2 of Gulliver. I have such great stuff for you today. I have responses from listeners, I have newsy bits, I have a couple of apps that look interesting, I have, for you Craftlet listeners, an interview with Kate Atherley. Now, you might say to yourself, Kate Atherley, Kate Atherley, I know that name, why do I know that name? Well... You might know that name because she is the designer of Bigger on the Inside, the brand new TARDIS shawl on Nitty.com. Or you might know her as the tech editor for Nitty.com. Or you might know her as the author of the fabulous new book, Beyond Knit and Pearl from Cooperative Press. And yes, full disclosure, Cooperative Press is the publisher of the What Would Madame Defarge Knit series. But Kate Atherley is also really, really awesome. And even if she weren't working with Cooperative Press, I would still be wanting to interview her. The the only difference really is that it was really easy for me to get a hold of her because I worked with her at Rhinebeck. So, you know, I'm networking. They say you need to network. So what am I doing? I'm networking. This is some of the fabulous people who I'm meeting. So I'm sharing with you. And along with that, fabulous people sharing thing. This last Monday, I was able to share a book signing with the fabulous Brenda Dane, fresh in off the boat from Wales. We picked her up at the airport. (laughs) There was police action at the airport, and don't think it didn't cross my mind. Ah, Brenda has landed, and therefore the police escort has had to arrive. It, uh, It was a little challenging to find her because, of course, she lands with a cell phone that doesn't work in the U.S., and all of my information is locked on the cell phone, and the cell phone charger was not working either. So, uh, we found each other. We made it to the hotel. We made it to the book signing. We had a lovely time. Brenda had wonderful classes. I knew some of the people in her classes, so that was even more fabulousness for me to be able to share people who I know and love from from this area of the world, from Northern Virginia, and uh, and share them with Brenda. And she too agrees that craftlet people, you're just better. She knows it. She thinks cast on people are just nifty too, but you know, the craftlet people, no joke, you show up in a place and people know who you are because you're just wonderful people. And speaking of that, I hope to see some of you tomorrow, I know this is short notice, at Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival. If you're going to be there, I will be at the Lama Jama booth or Lama Jama booth or Lama Jama booth. 
I'm not sure. I'm just showing up to help out. I'll be there definitely at lunchtime and definitely again around three. I'm going to be providing break time for the people who are working the booth full time. I will have books there. I will have the What Would Madame Defarge Knit shawl there. I will have my boys there with me who, uh, by the way, a uh, thing too would be more than happy to teach any of you how to finger knit. And thing one would be more than happy to teach any of you how to zentangle. So uh, feel free to show up for a, fr <laughs> for a free class from my children who are just so enthusiastic about their opportunity to share their knowledge <laughs> with with the rest of the world. And they do want you to know there will be more Doofus del Fuego, but not until school ends because they just don't have time to do it. And I, I think that's, I think that's true. And on another kid note, brief kid note, I acquired a cat. Thing two has been begging, begging for a pet for a year. And while we tried to move our tax bill, luckily we got the tax bill before we c committed to moving, um, that kind of prevented any forward motion in, in getting out of this location. So, so fine. So fine. We have a roof over our heads. Life is good. But we needed a pet. And so we have a new cat named Mittens, who we got from a, a, a final shelter, you know, the last chance, no-kill shelter. And uh, Mittens is a lovely little girl. She's right now getting groomed she was a little on the the mangy side and so she's getting cleaned up but she's a little black kitty with a white mustache and white paws and a little white diamond on her neck and she's just the sweetest thing and the boys are over the moon so that was very very happy making and exactly the kind of birthday present that i would wish for because tomorrow cinco de tequila is my birthday I know, it keeps happening every year, and it's uh, unnerving, the regularity with which this erupts into my daily life. But, uh, but I've been receiving warm and wonderful wishes from Craftlet listeners all week long, and, uh, and you guys just, you make my day. And, as a reminder, you do have a chance to talk with me in a perhaps more meaningful to the podcast way. If you have five minutes, rush over to the show notes at craftlit.com and take the survey. There's a link from the show notes sidebar, but there's also a link from this episode's show notes as well. The survey gives you an opportunity to tell me how you listen, what you listen to, what you've liked best, what you would like to change, uh, if anything. And um, and that, that just, you know, it gives you a platform to talk back to me so that I have a chance to make the show better for you. Along with that, um, your support in the past has meant the continuation of the podcast through some very dire moments in time. I'm hoping not to have any more dire moments, but, um, but part of that process is if you would like to donate to the show to help support it and make it better and better all the time, there is a tip jar for a one-time donation that you can find in the sidebar of the show notes. There is also a subscribe button. Now, Craftlet will always be free. But if you wish to donate in a more stress-free <laughs> and regular way, the subscription button will allow you to have $5 sucked out of your account every month. And then you don't have to think about it and it's done and you're being supporting of the show. And I so thank those of you who have already done it. You have warmed the cockles of my heart and, and that is a wonderful, warm feeling. The subscription isn't just supportive of the show though. When you go through the PayPal process, the last thing you'll see is a screen that says, 
return to, I think it's either the merchant page or the page you just left or something like that, you must click on that. That link will take you back to a super secret subscriber only page on the website. That page has information about freebies, information about the special uh, premiums that you will be receiving through email from Craftlet and just the books. But you do have to sign up for the subscriber only newsletter. That's where I'll be sending out links to the specials and, and things like that. So I don't have a, an easy way of contacting you without that final step. And PayPal is supposed to automatically redirect you to that page, but they have a glitch in their system. And the guy who I spoke with over the weekend said they have nothing on the books about fixing that glitch anytime soon. So the responsibility is on you. And for that, I deeply apologize. I was not happy with PayPal this weekend. Now, if you don't want to subscribe or or donate or anything like that, but you still want to be kept in the loop about things like me showing up at Maryland Sheep and Wool tomorrow, you can subscribe to the regular Craftlet newsletter. And that link is found at the very top of the craftlet.com show notes in the little post that says, hey, we're doing Gulliver's Travels and these are the different ways to listen and this is what the podcast is and you can sign up for the newsletter here. All of that is duplicated on the Just the Books site. So if you are a Just the Books listener, or if you switch from Craftlet to Just the Books and back again, all of that important information will show up in the same place. And many thanks to Penny from Little Acorn Creations and Pennywise Consulting, who has been helping me with the massive amounts of coding that has to go on behind the scenes in order just to get some of these things to run. Things that are supposed to be simple, like copy this button and paste it. And then you get nothing but stupid. So huge, huge kudos to Penny. Along with that, Penny is also going to be selling cheddars, complete cheddars. So if you are not a knitter, you can follow the link in the show notes and go and purchase a pre-knit, completely done for you, cheddar mouse. Cheddar the Craftlet Critter. I am working on patterns for cheddar right now. I have uh, Wensleydale. <laughs> Cheddar's little friend. And I'm working up the pattern for the rough, but I didn't want to release it yet. It's not, uh, I'm not really happy with the way that I've drawn the instructions. So I'm going to redraw one schematic and then I'll, I'll probably be releasing that over the next, next week or so. What else would Madame Defarge knit is on its way uh, towards completion. I'm doing final edits and our fabulous tech editor, Stephanie Talent, who you know from California Revival Knits, she and I have been racing to the home stretch, trying to get um, the final pieces done. And it's been, it's been a slog, but it's a good kind of slog. And I am very, very happy with, uh, with what we're about to release unleash upon you. <laughs> it's, it's good stuff. All right. And since we're back to talking about knitting, I'm going to let you hear a little bit from Kate Atherley, who wrote Beyond Knit and Pearl. If you were going to describe your CV in a nutshell, right? Mm. How would you describe yourself? What has your trajectory been? This is interesting to me. It feels like a circle. Mm. because when I was young and when I was a teenager, I was much more interested in creating. I was much more interested. I sewed a ton of my clothes when I was a teenager. I was much more interested in that side of things. I'm much more interested in, in a sort of a more art-directed side of things. And I ended up, for reasons, I don't know, 
um, for many reasons, I ended up studying mathematics at university. And wow. Yeah. I loved it. And I'm reasonably good at it. I wasn't good enough to become kind of an academic, but um, I went into the career that was sort of set by that kind of study uh-huh. and was not a good fit. Mm-hmm. I was capable, but didn't love it. It didn't get me excited. And I found that to come back to this kind of a career and knitting, you know, sort of knitting related, I've feels more like me. It feels truer to who I was mm-hmm. when I was a teenager and when I knew exactly who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do, which I didn't, but I just, the things that I would do when I was that age. And so I've come back to being more of a creator, but informed by my education. So I, I tell my dad, I use my math way more in this than I ever did in, in my uh, 15 years in the technology industry. Isn't that I, interesting? Yeah. So, and it's sort of my secret weapon Yeah. that I'm not afraid of the numbers. And it's why I'm, you know, I'm a tech editor. Um, um, and, you know, the I've taken stuff from the technology career. Just even spending spending years writing software manuals makes me think about issues like usability. Mm-hmm. So it's not for me. Tech editing isn't just about about checking that the numbers work. It's about making sure that the instructions make sense, mm-hmm. making sure there's a logic to them, and making sure that there's a flow. And so I've been able to take that to strengthen you know, my own skill set and what was ultimately my first love, which was this creating. That is so cool to be able to look back and see that kind of pathway behind you. Yeah. And go, oh yeah, no, there was a reason why yeah. I went through yeah. that crazy. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, the, in the middle of the crazy, I wouldn't have felt that it was a path, but it was clear. <laughs> like it's really clear yeah. that I would, and you do, you just gravitate towards the things you love and you gravitate the, towards the things you're good at and you've that, fulfill you and without sounding cheesy and here I am that is such a nice thing to be able to say yeah I I am incredibly fortunate from that point we went on a long conversation about the nature of the industry and technical stuff in the marketplace and I'm skipping some of that to get you to this point because ultimately my objective is to keep people make sure people have fun and stay knitting yes I mean, it's as simple as that. And I think that that is one of the things that's so awesome about your book. You know, that it does, it provides, it provides a common language. Yes. And that baseline. And I I keep thinking how different my trajectory would have been if I'd had access to your book earlier on in in the time when I re-picked up the needles 12, 13 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, and I think one of the things that that has helped me has been the teaching because I teach these classes and I teach this project class where people just show up and bring whatever they're working on. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just help. And I love this class. It's fun because first of all, I got the vicarious thrill of knitting all of these projects. I would never have time to knit. Um, But I also get to see knitters at different stages in their evolution and their growth Mm -hmm. because I get people who have, 
literally knitted two scarves and now, right, that's it. I want to do something else. I'm ready for a sweater. Or you get people, oh, I've been knitting for a long time, but this is my first experience working from a formal pattern. Or they've been knitting for a long time and now they want to learn to knit in the round or tackle socks or lace or what have you for the first time. And so every week... I am reminded about what it's like to learn something, do something for the first time. And even just that little, the the little comment in the book about why ribbing doesn't work the first time you do it. Um, And I've had email messages on thanking me for that. I had one woman email me and said that alone was worth the price of the book, which I thought was lovely. Because we all... Yeah, we all did it. And I've never seen it written into a book. This is how you do ribbing. You have to move the yarn. And it seems so, so obvious once you know. Yes. Um, But if you don't know, it took me a week (laughs) to work that one out at home alone. Yep. So, yes. So, I've tried to capture all of these things that... I wish I'd known on all of these things that I tell my students every week, all of the questions I get asked. Yep. And I think that's one of the things that, that I really liked about, about your book was that it, it kind of demystifies a lot of the, the um, habits of mind that people can get into because of the way we tend to teach knitting. Like, first mm-hmm. you do garter stitch. Yep. Which I hate. I've, got, well, I've sort of gotten to a point where I'm okay with it. Yeah, I know. I, know. I don't I'm, like that that's the default position yes okay you're gonna do a a scarf and garter stitch i would rather poke my eyes out with my knitting needles yeah yeah it's funny i learned that way as well and i did god i did about four or five long knit one knit two pearl two rib scarves oh um but um you know the dishcloth school of teaching knitting i i'm a big fan of these days you know dishcloths yes because you have to increase and decrease and you can add yep. patterns and it's and they're free. over more quickly more, more quickly <laughs> as well so yeah, yeah absolutely yeah well what's next on the as i rip out my socks that i'm designing for the 15th time um there's a cable that i just cannot get to look the way i want it to look and i'm yeah killing myself i've been uh, i'm just working on a lace design right now it's a lace sampler and it's got it comes out of one of the classes i teach and it's interesting each lace pattern is different and has something to teach about it and i've been rocking and rolling and i've chosen all these really complicated lace patterns and two-sided lace and multiple increases and crazy and noops and all sorts of stuff and it's been fabulous and the thing that's been kicking my butt is the garter stitch edging <laughs> seriously yeah, with eyelets. Like, it's just eyelets. And it's just because it hasn't been lining up right, and I've undone it four or five times. It's like, really, I could do all of this crazy Estonian stuff and, and yeah, and but bizarre shell stitch border. Stitch with the eyelets in it, yeah. So there so. you have it, listeners. What's going to stump Kate Atherley? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, there we have it. But no, so... Um, and again, like my book, it's sort of motivated my, by my classes in that these are the questions I've been asked about lace. You know, you say noob to people and they, they get scared. And so what I've done is I've put together this a sampler and hopefully it will be published real soon now. So maybe by the time this is, um, this is live. And what I've got is I've got about 30 rows of individual lace patterns and you can try things out. So rather than committing to an entire you know, stunning, but high pressure, Nancy Bush, you know, five foot square Estonian shawl. This is a good way of 
trying it. And hey, it's worked in stock yarn, so it's easy to work with. And also, filthy secret, if something goes horribly wrong in one particular section, you've got some garter stitch to make any corrections to your stitch counts or something. And so... But it's come out of all of these questions. So, well, what's a noop and how on earth do I deal with them? And um, how do I work two-sided lace? And, you know, all of these kinds of things. And what's the difference between a stocking stitch ground and a garter ground in your lace? These sorts of things. And so, I'm very, very led by um, what my students are asking. Because if one person asks the question, chances are someone else has the same question too. Absolutely. So I'm thinking about, you know, if people like the approach of the book, I'm thinking about what a volume two might look like and what could go into a volume two. Because I think in that volume two, there's um, there's certainly more time to be spent on more complex things that are still things people want to tackle. Cabling without a cable needle. Yep. Um, more lace, going further into lace, going further into color work. Mm-hmm. Entrelac, because I secretly really love Entrelac. <laughs> um, of course yes. you do. Yes, yes, because it's <laughs> tricky and you get to pick up lots of stitches. I had someone say to me once, so I need to practice increasing and decreasing and picking up stitches. Can you recommend a project? <laughs> oh, can I ever? <laughs> um, so I got her three balls of Noro and, and, oh, and yeah, sent her on her way. And she came back to me the next week. She said, you weren't kidding about the picking up stitches thing, were you? Nope. No, and you'll you- never fear it again. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I took a class with Catherine Alexander at SOAR a few years back, and I I took it because I love her colors. Yes. Not because I loved Entrelac at the time. Yep. And um, I was so amazed at her blithe ability, (laughs) and blithe is the word, Mm -hmm. to get 26 people sitting around a table to knit backwards mm, yeah it's fun. without you know without freaking out and with talk of knitting backwards i had to send kate a picture of cheddar in his ruff well the, uh-huh. either, when you when you do see it the, the mouse is wearing a ruff oh well naturally and the ruff be, it became very very clear that knitting backwards <gasps> was necessary that's adorable yes actually yeah that is kind of excellent but the if i hadn't gotten used to knitting backwards Mm. at Catherine alexander's class it would have taken me days instead of an evening yeah yeah absolutely absolutely and it's it's that sort of fearlessness of being able to take something you've learned for one technique and apply it to something else that you know that's when i see a, a knitter kind of everything clicks and they start to soar um, when they're able to connect ideas like that. Because my student last night picking up stitches, so we had the conversation about, well, it's easy to pick up on the knit side. What happens if you drop on the pearl side? You just flip it over. And I watched her figure out garter stitch. I saw it happen. Wow. She said, so garter stitch then, I'm just flipping it back and forth. He said, Yep. Yep. We agreed it's a pain in the butt, and I agree with you that garter stitch is, is not ideal as a beginner fabric for that reason. It's harder to pick up. Yep. But just being able to take that piece of information and apply it is so good. And so, yeah, you took what seemed like an obscure technique required for an obscure technique, which is entrelac, yep. and apply it somewhere else. So, yep. yeah. Yeah, that and makes us happy. It does. It does. It makes you happy, and it makes you feel like you've achieved something. Yeah. Oh, I understand that. Yes. And it makes absolutely. my world a bigger place. Yeah. Yeah. And that's always nice. 
Yeah, applying knowledge, I suppose, going back to instruction, going back to teaching. Yeah. I find it, personally, I find it to be easier, I think, with physical techniques, things that require a transfer of knowledge that lives in my muscles. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends so strongly on the individual and on the individual learning style as well. And sometimes it happens, the transfer happens in the brain, sometimes it happens in the fingers. And sometimes I see people do something and they're not really sure why they did that just then, but it worked. And it's great in either way. And so I love knitting for that too, because it can be a very academic kind of thing. And I mean, I think that's my approach as well. If you leave me alone in a room, I will I will become, you know, more of the June Hemmons Hyatt school of um, thinking through all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but for so many for so many people, they don't even. It's not even a thought about the math or the geometry. It's just that, well, this is I can see it, I can touch it, I, I can understand how these pieces fit together. And so I think you've got different people with different learning styles and different understanding styles there's probably a more a better word for that but a come you know putting these ideas together and i love it i just love seeing things click like that to hear that the book has explained something you know from the for me the best compliment is when someone says oh now i get it Mm -hmm. absolutely i like that that's good so So what's next for you you're talking about a volume two yeah um I'm doing some more designing right now. I, I go in phases. I think we all do. And so right yes. now I am all over lace. So I've just published two lace designs and there are more coming. And I think I'm just sort of challenging myself. Um, I go through stages of buying books and six months later. So I bought a whole bunch of books last year, German, all these incredible, tricky, complicated, scary looking German lace books. And then what happens is I read through them and then six months later, designs start popping up. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's been bouncing around in the back of my head. So that's where I'm at right now. So, um, yes, it's still buying lace. Yeah, yeah. I'm still buying lace books. So I think I, uh, this this will continue for quite some time. So but where I'm can ex- people buy your lace patterns? So, uh, uh, so my blog is www.wisehildaknits.com and from my blog you can get to uh, my Ravelry store and my Pattern Fish store. Um, I'm Wise Hilda on Ravelry. Hilda was my grandmother. She taught me to knit. Perfect. So yes, and she's, yeah, wonderful woman. Also quite sort of mathematically inclined, I think, in her approach. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, She was a very, very good bridge player as well. Um, which in bridge is challenging it's definitely challenging yes so um but yes so so hilda taught me to knit and i i carry on her great traditions i think i'm letting her down in one respect though because there's a story in the family and sadly i've not been able to confirm it that she used to earn a penny by turning the heels of socks for the ladies in her neighborhood when she was a girl and I think I'm letting her down because rather than charge people to turn the heels for them, I'm teaching people how to turn their own so they're not dependent on me anymore. So, you know, there's, you know, revenue opportunity lost maybe, but, uh, you know, I think in the long run, this is a better approach. It's a bit more scalable, but uh, yeah. So yep. she was a sock knitter. She was a knitter extraordinaire. Wow. And I've carried that on. So my mum knits too. Her approach is very different 
different. My mum's a lot more creative, and so her approach is less technical. Mm. Um, she's she's an excellent knitter, and um, mum mum she loves knitting for the family. She absolutely does. And um, when she's not knitting for other people, sometimes she'll knit things for me because as a professional in this industry, it's tough. You don't always get the time to knit the stuff you want for yourself boy that's the truth um and so you know um occasionally i'll find a sweater pattern that i'll I'll absolutely fall in love with so i can call in the big guns i'll get mom to knit it for me she makes me put it together but that seems only fair so so finishing is a drag and if you want your sweater done right you're gonna do it yourself yeah exactly but yeah she's a great knitter so uh yeah just carrying on a family tradition there so that's so cool yeah and lest you think we didn't get our geek on. Doctor Who, so um, did you see the Nitty Surprise? <gasps> Speaking of Doctor Who. No. So there's this shawl. It's called Bigger on the Inside. <laughs> so, awesome. I'm so go it's got these it. little boxes on it. You might like it. <laughs> I did make the TARDIS socks for the boys. Okay, good. Okay, good. Yes. Because every yes, child yes, needs yes. them. Oh, no, absolutely. Yes. And uh, I will not be knitting them the Tom Baker scarves. No, no. Well, this is... So this is actually my attempt. So, and it's funny, it connects back to sort of what we talked about right at the beginning. So I designed this shawl called Bigger on the Inside, Mm -hmm. and it's got little TARDISes on it. And I tell the story about how I had a Doctor Who scarf, and I wore it until I finished university. I made mum knit it, and... You know, it, as a knitter now, eight feet of knit one, pearl one ribbing. Wow, I feel kind of bad I did that to her, but she obviously loves me very much. And I had this terrible, terrible conversation with a coworker um, at the time. You know, I just finished university and I was still sort of full of full of vim and vigor and youthful enthusiasms and craziness. And here I am in the corporate world and, you know, he made a comment in passing that it wasn't very grown up and I should I should be a grow up grown up. Oh no. I was gonna be taken seriously, so I put my Doctor Who scarf away. I kept it. Well thank God. Yeah, but I put it away. And so, you know, fast forward many years, and so I designed myself a new Doctor Who scarf. Good. And much more sophisticated. It is more grown up, but even more playful in some ways. And so um, there it is, and it's on Nitty. And there's a picture of me wearing the original scarf as well. Oh, so. good. Oh, yeah, yeah, which is I'm good, which is fun. And it was in completely in the wrong colors. Like, we didn't get the right colors. Because this, of course, was in the days before the internet, because I'm old. And so there was no way, you know, you could figure out exactly what colors were required. That's so true. it's just basically what it was in terms of colors was every color that this particular yarn company made. I think that's so we have fine everything in it well yeah it worked it worked so it was mum did a mum did an excellent excellent job and so i've got two doctor who scarves to wear now depending on what kind of mood i'm in so yes <laughs> yes it's all good um but yeah let me know what you think that's very cool yeah and people are responding well to the story too well yeah and that's that's the thing that's you know it's like all those people who had ponchos when they were kids mm-hmm. that they loved and then they had to put them away yeah. I still haven't gotten to the point where I'm going to go get a poncho out, but I did have one. And I yeah. did hit that point where people are like, y- you really need to stop wearing that now. Yep. Yeah. But yeah. 
Scoot. Yes. Growing up so. stinks sometimes. It does, kind of, yeah. So, yeah. well, I think it's all about understanding when you need to be grown up or when you don't need to be grown up. So, is there anything else that you would like people to know about what you are doing up to, what you've done with the book, what you hope for the, you know, anything else? You know what I would love to know is I'd love to know what I can tackle for volume two. Mm. So I'm asking a question. So what stuff do people want explained? What do people need help learning? Uh, What kinds of projects would you wish you could tackle but are intimidated by or just feel that the instructions are there? Because I know what I think are the next steps. But I'd like to know what other people would like to learn. You know, well, yeah. you know. I, as I say, I'm all excited about complicated lace and noops and, and you know, and double-sided lace and you know, variable stitch counts and all of that kind of thing. But if that's not something people feel they are necessarily want to learn, it may just be me. You know, um, let me know. And is there something I've skipped? Mm. I do definitely think I need to spend more time in volume two on fixing mistakes. That's a good one. Yeah. That's always fun. Yeah. So, but yeah, if there's anything else. But, you know, my goal in life is to make people successful as a knitter. Give them the skills, but also give them good patterns. Not just my patterns, but other people's patterns as well. So, I'm a tough tech editor, you know, because again, it's not just about making sure that the instruction, the numbers are right, but it's making sure that the instructions are clear. And so, I want, you know, the designers to make sure that they're publishing the best possible patterns they can so that they are making knitters successful. And then, because successful knitters will buy more patterns. And they will buy more yarn and they will keep doing it. That is so, so true. That's so wonderful. Where should people send this information? Should they email it to you or put a comment yeah, on the on absolutely. Blog post? Either way, comment on, comment on a blog post or email. And so it's Kate, K-A-T-E, at wisehildanitz.com. Easy enough. But yeah, let me know what you want to know. That sounds lovely. How nice to I'm, be able to influence a book. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. I'm absolutely looking forward to it. Yay. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, thank you. This was fun. And so that was Kate Atherley. Doesn't she have the most marvelous accent? I love, I love the way she speaks. Uh, and I realized I probably missed like 50% of what this woman has done for all of us in the, the world of knitters, but um, but you get at least a little bit of insight into, into her and her thinking and the marvelous way she's approached her book, and, um, and now you get an opportunity to actually influence her next book. And I, I do want to stress, while, the, while Beyond Knit and Pearl is a book that would help a new knitter be a very good knitter very quickly... It is also a book that an experienced knitter can learn from. It's not just for newbies. And, uh, and that was one of the things that I really appreciated in it. I, there was a, a woman at a, the class that I taught in Haymarket in Virginia who, she'd been knitting forever and she knew everything. And I said to her at one point, my gosh, you should probably teach the class. And she said, no, I always learn something. From every class I go to, I always learn something. And I thought, what a great attitude to have. You know, you, you know what you're doing. 
and you're going to a, a class that for some people would just be a huge yawn. But for her, she's looking for that new thing. She's looking for that new piece of information. That woman's brain has to be the size of the planet. It was just awesome. Now, I did promise you a couple of other things uh, before we get to Gulliver. One is my father-in-law, who is a photographer. He was a lawyer, then a mediator. Now he's a photographer. He just got back from a trip to Africa. I, I think it might have been his fourth or fifth trip to Africa, taking pictures. And... Uh, he created an iPhone app of some of his pictures. And I've put a link to the app because you can see what he takes photographs of. And good Lord, it's lovely. It just, it kind of calms your soul to look at his pictures. So go take a look at his app. And, um, and then a friend of my mom's sent me a site. I have not had a chance to explore it much, but what I have explored looked really amazing. It is called Cowbird, C-O-W. BIRD.com. I can't tell you more about it because I haven't explored it enough, but wow, worth another look at least. Oh, and uh, I was on another podcast, uh, A Good Story is Hard to Find, with Julie from Happy Catholic and Forgotten, <laughs> Forgotten Classics. I almost said Forgotten Catholics because I was <laughs> going too fast. Forgotten Classics. Uh, I got to record with Julie and her friend Scott, and we talked about The Wrath of Khan. And normally their podcast is two Catholics talking about kind of good stories that they find, but from a Catholic point of view. And so I kind of inserted a Jewish point of view, um, <laughs> because Spock, he's a nice boy who loves his mother, and he's a doctor, so this is good. Um, but I, it's always a little uncomfortable to kind of say, well, I'll speak for Jews everywhere, because... As we, <laughs> I made Julie laugh. the The joke is, if you put three Jews in a room, you'll have five opinions, and 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 there's good reason for that because when you are growing up and reading the Torah, you are debating and arguing and wrestling with the Torah. And if you know your Old Testament, uh, you know that wrestling with angels. Uh, transforms you and makes you stronger and changes you and that that's not a bad thing and so if you're growing up in that tradition you tend to be able to look at uh, stories or issues from many points of view and and argument isn't aggressive or uh, angrified it is it is a, a path to the truth it is a path to figuring things out and and for us having a good time while you do it so there are links in the show notes to the the Good Story is Hard to Find podcast show notes as well. And my computer is beeping at me. It was beeping at me throughout the interview with Kate. I know you could hear it. And if <laughs> when I can figure out how to turn it off, I will. But until that time, you're going to hear beeping in the background. There it is. I also am going to be on SFF Audio. I think I have to provide Jesse with one last link. And then, uh, and then that'll be up too. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. Now, Gulliver. So last week I did mention to you that Gulliver and Newton had a little well, Newton probably couldn't have cared less about anybody else, but but that <laughs> Swift at least was not so thrilled with Newton. And Elizabeth Green Musselman, who is a designer and college professor and fabulous woman all around, 
she recorded a response, which I thought I would like to share with you. Hey, Heather, this is Elizabeth Green Musselman of Dark Matter Knits and a longtime listener. And I'm calling because uh, I was just listening to the first episode of Gulliver's Travels. And um, you were talking about why Swift might have disliked Isaac Newton. And I thought I would call and talk about that because in my other life, I was a historian of science and know a little bit about Isaac Newton and some of what he was up to. So basically, lots of people hated Isaac Newton. (laughs) He was actually a pretty unlikable sort of person. For instance, he once in a private diary called his mother a whore because she remarried after his father died. I don't think he ever said that to her face, but yeah, gives you some idea of the kind of person he was. And he also became famous for rather viciously defending uh, his version of calculus against supporters of Leibniz, who also came up with another version that a lot of people thought was made more sense. Um, And anyway, really, who could possibly like a guy who came up with most of modern optics, mathematics, mechanics before he'd even finished college? I mean, really, that's just kind of obnoxious. But actually, the dispute with Swift, I found out, has more to do with Newton's position later in life as master of the mint. Um, and that means he was the the one in charge of the manufacture of Britain's money. And at this point, Ireland was uh, had long been under, under British rule. And um, so what happened was, I mean, I've never really understood monetary policy very well, but my understanding of what happened is this, that basically there was a guy who uh, through a whole series of corruptions, got a patent to produce copper money for Ireland. And Swift was opposed to this because, and a lot of other Irish people were opposed to this, because um, the idea was that only gold and silver coins were worth anything. And so this seemed like a scheme to try to uh, put worthless copper money into Ireland and take all of the precious silver and gold money out. So Swift became a very vocal critic of that policy. And, um, and eventually, it looks like it, the, the scheme never went anywhere to produce this copper money. And Swift became kind of a hero of Irish patriotism, basically, as a result, he wasn't really the leader of this movement, but he kind of became the public figurehead for it. So um, and then Newton, of course, because he was master of the mint, was had to act on the British government's behalf in the legal case that came out of it. So, and Swift thought that Newton was basically just acting like a toady, that when he did the assay, the kind of chemical analysis of these copper coins, that Newton was just kind of kowtowing to uh, British government interests. So it actually has very, well, it has a little bit to do with science because of the assaying, but, um, but and probably has something to do with the fact that Newton went to Cambridge. <laughs> but, um, but it was really about money and about imperialism. So there you have it. Bye. All right. So what is the lesson that I have learned? Always have listeners who are scientific or historians of science <laughs> listening to the show. Very interesting. I have a feeling, I have a sneaking suspicion that we will hear from Elizabeth again, because this book does in many places start to wrestle with ideas of science and economics and society and 
social issues. It's, it is a wide-ranging satire, which I enjoy quite a bit. I find. Now, today's chapter, we're doing chapter two. We're still in Lilliput. And it, as you recall, uh, Gulliver has been lost at sea, uh, almost drowned, found himself tied by diminutive people in the country of Lilliput. And so now he is living in Lilliput and he will interact with the people. Now, this is the first real opportunity for satire because he is going to start to describe important people like the emperor of Lilliput. Conventional wisdom is that he's really making fun of George I, which is likely, but kind of hard to prove, because George I didn't look the way he is describing the, the Lilliputian emperor. That could have been done for his own safety, so that if somebody came and said, hey, you're making fun of George I, he could just as easily turn around and go, this is nothing like George I, what are you talking about? Are you implying that the king is less than perfect? And then he would be fine. Um, he, he had started out himself as a Whig, part of the Whig party, that's W-H-I-G, but he eventually converted to being a Tory. And... And like any convert, was very zealous and uh, became an enormous pamphleteer for the Tory party. Well, when George I became king, the Tory party was overthrown and the Whigs were restored. And therefore, it is very likely that the Whigs slash George I was at least one of his targets when... Uh, he starts to kind of satirically paint the emperor. Now, the thing that I find interesting about Gulliver's Travels is that while it is a satire, and that is not in question, it is also true that he is a good storyteller. He is parodying those travel stories, the kind of captivity narratives or how I spent 17 years at sea, kind of those things. He is making fun of those. He is also satirically pointing fingers at things that were driving him nuts during his time, but he's also telling an excellent story. And I just had to pause and save and re-record a bit because uh, there's an enormous storm that has just kicked its way in here and the lightning flashes, I actually have my back to the window, the lightning flashes are so bright that it looked like a flashbulb went off in here. So you may hear rumbles from time to time. I'm, if it happens very frequently, I'm not going to stop. You'll just know that the weather is tempestuous outside and that'll be fine. You're a grown-up. I know you can handle this. So uh, some of the things that he is saying about the king, he talks about him being taller than any of the court. Now this is kind of a two-handed compliment. He's the tallest Lilliputian. <laughs> it's not an enormous compliment, but the idea that uh, people who were tall are more regal goes back way back, way, way back. And it, I, evidently, according to Isaac Asimov, there is some proof that, historically speaking, uh, people who became king, or in fact queen, but we're talking about kings mostly, um, in many countries that have royalty, um, they were taller. So perhaps it is the health, 
<laughs> their general healthy nature that allowed them to grow taller than everybody else, uh, made them stronger, made it easier for them to be followed by people, made it easier for them to have a commanding presence. I'm sure there are thousands of possible reasons why this could be true, but it is important that he does describe the emperor of Lilliput as being taller than the other Lilliputians. So that's one thing. But he also talks about him having an Austrian lip. Now, neither is this a disease, nor is it some <laughs> speech habit. This is an actual physical feature that was common to the Habsburgs. And the Habsburg, at, at the time of that Swift was writing, uh, they were ruling Austria. And it was a, a, a very prominent lower jaw and kind of a thick lower lip. And I will try and find a picture of this to put on the show notes, uh, just so you can see, as Isaac Asimov says, it is not attractive. And uh, <laughs> and that's probably why Swift mentions it. Uh, it was actually so bad that Charles II, who was the last Habsburg king of Spain, had to have his meat cut up tiny, especially small for him because he simply couldn't chew properly. That's how bad it is. I don't know if this is, you know, due to inbreeding or, or whatever, but, um, but it was a a distinct physical quality that was uh, carried by the Habsburgs. Not all of them, but enough that it was recognizable. In today's chapter, one of the things that he's going to start to go through is the language issue, which I mentioned before, that, that Swift blessed Gulliver, an otherwise gullible character, with the ability to learn languages very rapidly. And, um, and sometimes you will hear him using terms that are being used just familiarly enough that you kind of go, oh, I think I know what he means by that. But he is actually, and in fact, using an archaic definition. Like he'll, he'll talk about knowing the priests and lawyers by their habits. Well, this is like a nun's habit. This is by their costume, by their mode of dress. And, uh, and that's how he recognized who these men were when he's talking to the emperor. He also talks about high and low Dutch, which is really high and low German. And this got very complicated because in German, you call Germany Deutschland, and Deutsch is German, but then there's Dutch, which became its own place. Uh, it gained its in, in, Holland, the Netherlands, the Netherlands gained their independence from the Holy Roman Empire in 1648 and became its own place. So now we, you know it's one more separation away from from Germany, from from Deutschland. So there's High German and Low German. In this case, he's referring to them as High Dutch and Low Dutch. High German is the language of the southern highlands in Germany, and Low German is the language of the northern coast. Therefore, Dutch, northern coast, would be Low Dutch or Low German. Okay? I don't know if it matters that much, but I do hear, in, especially in older stories, references to High German and Low German, High Dutch and Low Dutch, and I've never really known what they meant. So now we all know. And I thought that might be useful somewhere in the future. He mentions lingua franca, which in this case means any language containing words that are kind of glommed together from several different languages. English, as you probably already know, you had the Angles and the Saxons, you had all of these different cultures smashing together in Britain a long, long time ago. And I'm sure we have someone here who is a linguist. But if you aren't a linguist, but you'd like to learn more about linguistics, uh, Bill Bryson wrote a great book called Mother Tongue, which is the first place that I really had this very clearly put before me. That when 
when all of these languages smashed together, you had some very interesting things happening because just like with high German and low German, you wind up with kind of an upper class language and a lower class language kind of paralleling each other, which is why in our modern world, in our post Magna Carta world, you wind up with legalese like cease and desist, which mean the same thing. But one was a Latin based and one was a Germanic based root. And, and you'll hear in lawyer speak often these duplicate terms. Those have been used historically to make sure that people understood what was happening to them, no matter which version of the language they spoke or were more familiar with or more comfortable with. And in fact, li- listening to this, one of the things that struck me was Yiddish, which is kind of Hebrew and German, and I'm going to make an assumption here because I'm not entirely positive, so somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, Uh, low German and Hebrew, and you smash them together. And it's fascinating because you see Yiddish written sometimes with the Hebrew alphabet, but it's pronounced and sounds an awful lot like German. And Mike Myers, who is not Jewish, who did, uh, what was his name, Barbara on Coffee Talk on, you know what I'm talking about, on Saturday Night Live, um, some of his Yiddish was real. The Veklempt, the, the that, that stuff's real. But the Spilkes and the Genetic Soink, that was totally made up. And he talked about it, Yiddish being a particularly onomatopoeic language because it does sound like what it means quite often. A kerfuffle is, you know, when kids are mixing it up. Oh, it's a kerfuffle. Um, and it's it's a language like that you can really see as a language of commerce. It's a language of business because even if you don't speak German or you don't speak Hebrew, you, when you kind of glom these things together, you start to be able to hear, especially when you hear it spoken, not so much when you read it, but when you hear it spoken, you can pick it up and go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And this is one of the reasons why I'm doing Canterbury Tales for the subscribers because I've been listening to Canterbury Tales in the original. And I swear to you, in the original, it makes perfect sense. Reading it is very confusing because the spelling's wonky, but hearing it, perfect sense, because we can hear the words that sound familiar. Well, in in Gulliver's day, the lingua franca that he's talking about is a kind of a a pidgin English, P-I-D-G-I-N, and it was, it's actually a thing. It was made up of French and Spanish and Arabic, and it was uh, a language that really grew out of commerce in the Mediterranean. So you have Europeans, you have Muslims, uh, you have everybody kind of smashed together there, and this is how they traded. Now, lingua franca originally meant Frankish language because the Muslims called all Western Europeans Franks because of France being a massive trading partner in the Mediterranean. Cool, right? I love this. And so, so these these things that Gulliver is is bringing up that might seem kind of unimportant to us, they're actually really important. And they were really important historically during his time period. Because while like King George, he, he didn't speak English when he was king of England. He had to speak to his ministers in French and have them translate. He couldn't have cared less about learning English. So it's language matters is where I'm going with this. And it matters a lot to Gulliver. And it, it, and he talks about being able to learn languages with a certain amount of pride, as well he should, all the way through the story. 
So a couple of other things that might just throw you if you hear it because you're not going to recognize the word necessarily. We're talking about language. Uh, he talks about a person of quality. Gulliver, you will hear this all the way through the book, is always thrilled when anyone with money or position or power pays attention to him. So he, he talks about people of quality, when the quality people pay attention to him. Uh, the word beeves is spelled B-E-E-V as in Victor, E-S. These are cattle, full-grown cattle. Uh, demenses, D-E-M-E-S-N-E-S, is evidently an archaic form of domains or dominions. So you're going to hear that term. And then the last term, there's other stuff that I'll talk to you about on the flip side, but the last term that might throw you is pocket perspective, which is what they called um, a small portable telescope that, you know, a sailor might carry with them. Who knew? So I think those are, those are the bits and pieces that you might need heading in. And then I will catch you on the other side and we'll talk about the chapter a little bit then. Enjoy. Chapter 2, read to us by Aaron Ziegler of Chopard Podcast. Chapter 2 The Emperor of Lilliput, attended by several of the nobility, comes to see the author in his confinement. The Emperor's person and habit described, learned men appointed to teach the author their language, he gains favor by his mild disposition, his pockets are searched, and his sword and pistols taken from him. When I found myself on my feet, I looked about me, and must confess I never beheld a more entertaining prospect. The country round appeared like a continued garden, and the enclosed fields, which were generally forty feet square, resembled so many beds of flowers. These fields were intermingled with woods of half a stang, and the tallest trees, as I could judge, appeared to be seven foot high. I viewed the town on my left hand, which looked like the painted scene of a city in a theatre. I had been for some hours extremely pressed by the necessity of nature, which was no wonder, it being almost two days since I had last disburdened myself. I was under great difficulties between urgency and shame. The best expedient I could think on was to creep into my house, which I accordingly did, and shutting the gate after me, I went as far as the length of my chain would suffer, and discharged my body of that uneasy load." but this was the only time I was ever guilty of so uncleanly an action, for which I cannot but hope the candid reader will give some allowance after he hath maturely and impartially considered my case, and the distress I was in. From this time, my constant practice was, as soon as I rose, to perform that business in open air at the full extent of my chain, and due care was taken every morning before company came, that the offensive matter should be carried off in wheelbarrows by two servants appointed for that purpose. I would not have dwelt so long upon a circumstance that, perhaps at first sight, may appear not very monumentous, if I had not thought it necessary to justify my character in point of cleanliness to the world which I am told some of my maligners have been pleased upon this and other occasions to call in question. When this adventure was at an end, I came back out of my house, having occasion for fresh air. The emperor was already descended from the tower and advancing on horseback towards me, which had like to have cost him dear, for the beast, although very well trained, yet wholly unused to such a sight, which appeared as if a mountain moved before him, reared up on his hinder feet, but that prince, who is an excellent horseman, kept his seat until his attendants ran in and held the bridle, while his majesty had time to dismount. When he alighted, 
He surveyed me round with great admiration, but kept beyond the length of my chains. He ordered his cooks and butlers, who were already prepared, to give me victuals and drink, which they pushed forward in a sort of vehicles upon wheels until I could reach them. I took these vehicles and soon emptied them all. Twenty of them were filled with meat and ten with liquor. Each of the former afforded me two or three good mouthfuls, and I emptied the liquor of ten vessels, which was contained in earthen vials, into one vehicle, drinking it off at a draught, and so I did with the rest. The empress and young princes of the blood of both sexes, attended by many ladies, sat at some distance in their chairs, but upon the accident that happened to the emperor's horse, they alighted and came near his person, which I am now going to describe. He is taller by almost the breadth of my nail than any of his court, which alone is enough to strike an awe into the beholders. His features are strong and masculine, with an Austrian lip, an arched nose, his complexion olive, his countenance erect, his body and limbs well proportioned, all his motions graceful, and his deportment majestic. He was then past his prime, being twenty-eight years and three-quarters old, of which he had reigned about seven in great felicity, and generally victorious. For the better convenience of beholding him, I lay on my side, so that my face was parallel to his, and he stood but three yards off. However, I have had him since many times in my hand, and therefore cannot be deceived in the description. His dress was very plain and simple, the fashion of it between the Asiatic and the European, but he had on his head a light helmet of gold adorned with jewels and a plume on the crest. He held his sword drawn in his hand to defend himself if I should happen to break loose. It was almost three inches long. The hilt and scabbard were gold enriched with diamonds. His voice was shrill, but very clear and articulate, and I could distinctly hear it when I stood up. The ladies and courtiers were all most magnificently clad, so that the spot they stood upon seemed to resemble a petticoat spread on the ground, embroidered with figures of gold and silver. His imperial majesty spoke often to me, and I returned answers, but neither of us could understand a syllable. There were several of his priests and lawyers present, as I conjectured by their habits, who were commanded to address themselves to me, and I spoke to them in as many languages as I had the least smattering of, which were high and low Dutch, Latin, French, Spanish, Italian, and lingua franca, but all to no purpose. After about two hours, the court retired, and I was left with a strong guard to prevent the impertinence and probably the malice of the rabble, who were very impatient to crowd about me as near as they durst, and some of them had the impudence to shoot their arrows at me as I sat on the ground by the door of my house, whereof one very narrowly missed my left eye, but the colonel ordered six of the ringleaders to be seized, and thought no punishment so proper as to deliver them bound into my hands, which some of his soldiers accordingly did, pushing them forwards with the butt-ends of their pikes into my reach. I took them all in my right hand, put five of them into my coat-pocket, and as to the sixth, I made a countenance as if I would eat him alive. The poor man squalled terribly, and the colonel and his officers were in much pain, especially when they saw me take out my penknife. But I soon put them out of fear, for looking mildly and immediately cutting the strings he was bound with, I set him gently on the ground, and away he ran. I treated the rest in the same manner, taking them one by one out of my pocket, and I observed both the soldiers and people 
were highly obliged at this mark of my clemency, which was represented very much to my advantage at court. Towards night, I got with some difficulty into my house, where I lay on the ground and continued to do so for about a fortnight, during which time the emperor gave orders to have a bed prepared for me. Six hundred beds of the common measure were brought in carriages and worked up in my house, and hundred and fifty of their beds sewn together made up the breadth and length, and these were four double, which, however, kept me but very indifferently from the hardness of the floor that was of smooth stone. By the same computation, they provided me with sheets, blankets, and coverlets, tolerable enough for one who has been so long inured to hardships as I. As the news of my arrival spread through the kingdom, it brought prodigious numbers of rich, idle, and curious people to see me, so that the villages were almost emptied, and great neglect of tillage and household affairs must have ensued if His Imperial Majesty had not provided by several proclamations and orders of state against this inconveniency. He directed that those who had already beheld me should return home and not presume to come within fifty yards of my house without license from court, whereby the secretaries of state got considerable fees. In the meantime, the emperor held frequent councils to debate what course should be taken with me, and I was afterwards assured by a particular friend, a person of great quality, who was as much in the secret as any, that the court was under many difficulties concerning me. They apprehended my breaking loose, that my diet would be very expensive and might cause a famine. Sometimes they determined to starve me, or at least to shoot me in the face and hands with poisoned arrows, which would soon dispatch me. But again they considered that the stench of so large a carcass might produce a plague in the metropolis and probably spread through the whole kingdom. In the midst of these consultations, several officers of the army went to the door of the great council chamber, and two of them being admitted, gave an account of my behavior to the six criminals above mentioned, which made so favorable an impression in the breast of His Majesty and the whole board in my behalf that an imperial commission was issued out obliging all the villagers nine hundred yards round the city to deliver in every morning six beeves, forty sheep, and other victuals for my sustenance, together with a proportional quantity of bread and wine and other liquors for the due payment of which his majesty gave assignments upon his treasury. For this prince lives chiefly upon his own demeans, seldom except upon great occasions raising any subsidies upon his subjects who are bound to attend him in his wars at their own expense. An establishment was also made of six hundred persons to be my domestics, who had board wages allowed for their maintenance and tents built for them very conveniently on either side of my door. It was likewise ordered that three hundred tailors should make me a suit of clothes after the fashion of the country, that six of His Majesty's greatest scholars should be employed to instruct me in their language, and lastly, that the emperor's horses and those of the nobility and troops of guards should be exercised in my sight to accustom themselves to me. All these orders were duly put in execution, and in about three weeks, I made a great progress in learning their language, during which time the emperor frequently honored me with his visits and was pleased to assist my masters in teaching me. We began already to converse together in some sort, and the first words I learnt were to express my desire that he would please to give me my liberty, which I every day repeated on my knees. His answer, as I could apprehend, 
was that this must be a work of time, not to be thought on without the advice of his counsel, and that first I must lumos kelmen pesos desmar lon emposo, that is, swear a peace with him and his kingdom. However, that I should be used with all kindness, and he advised me to acquire by my patience and discreet behavior the good opinion of himself and his subjects. He desired I would not take it ill if he gave orders to certain proper officers to search me, for probably I might carry about me several weapons, which must needs be dangerous things if they answer the bulk of so prodigious a person. I said His Majesty should be satisfied, for I was ready to strip myself and turn up my pockets before him. This I delivered part in words and part in signs. He replied that by the laws of the kingdom I must be searched by two of his officers, that he knew this could not be done without my consent and assistance, that he had so good an opinion of my generosity and justice as to trust their persons in my hands, that whatever they took from me should be returned when I left the country or paid for at the rate which I would set upon them. I took up the two officers in my hands, put them first into my coat pockets and then into every other pocket about me except my two fobs and another secret pocket which I had no mind should be searched, wherein I had some little necessaries of no consequence to any but myself. In one of my fobs there was a silver watch, and in the other a small quantity of gold in a purse. These gentlemen, having pen, ink, and paper about them, made an exact inventory of everything they saw, and when they had done, desired I would set them down that they might deliver it to the emperor. This inventory I afterwards translated into English, and is word for word as follows. Imprimis, in the right coat pocket of the great man mountain, for so I interpret the words Quimbus Flestrin, after the strict search we found only one great piece of coarse cloth, large enough to be a footcloth for your majesty's chief room of state. In the left pocket we saw a huge silver chest with a cover of the same metal which we, the searchers, were not able to lift. We desired it should be opened, and one of us, stepping into it, found himself up to the mid-leg in a sort of dust, some part whereof, flying up to our faces, set us both a-sneezing for several times together. In his right waistcoat pocket, we found a prodigious bundle of white thin substances folded one over another, about the bigness of three men tied with a strong cable and marked with black figures, which we humbly conceive to be writings every letter almost half as large as the palm of our hands. In the left there was a sort of engine, from the back of which were extended twenty long poles resembling the palisados before your majesty's court, wherewith we conjecture the man-mountain combs his head. But we did not always trouble him with questions, because we found it a great difficulty to make him understand us. In the large pocket on the right side of his middle cover, so I translate the word runfulo, by which they meant my breeches, we saw a hollow pillar of iron, about the length of a man, fastened to a strong piece of timber, larger than the pillar, and upon one side of the pillar were huge pieces of iron sticking out, cut into strange figures, which we know not what to make of. In the left pocket, another engine of the same kind. In the smaller pocket, on the right side, were several round, flat pieces of white and red metal of different bulk. Some of the white, which seemed to be silver, were so large and heavy that my comrade and I could hardly lift them.
In the left pocket were two black pillars irregularly shaped. We could not without difficulty reach the top of them as we stood at the bottom of his pocket. One of them was covered and seemed all of a piece, but at the upper end of the other there appeared a white round substance about twice the bigness of our heads. Within each of these was enclosed a prodigious plate of steel, which by our orders we obliged him to shew us, because we apprehended they might be dangerous engines. He took them out of their cases, and told us that in his own country his practice was to shave his beard with one of these, and to cut his meat with the other. There were two pockets which we could not enter. These he called his fobs. They were two large slits cut into the top of his middle cover, but squeezed close by the pressure of his belly. Out of the right fob hung a great silver chain, with a wonderful kind of engine at the bottom. We directed him to draw out whatever was at the end of that chain, which appeared to be a globe, half silver and half of some transparent metal. For on the transparent side we saw certain strange figures, circularly drawn, and thought we could touch them until we found our fingers stopped with that lucid substance. He put this engine to our ears, which made an incessant noise like that of a water mill, and we conjecture it is either some unknown animal or the god that he worships. But we are more inclined to the latter opinion, because he assured us, if we understand him right, for he expressed himself very imperfectly, that he seldom did anything without consulting it. He called it his oracle, and said it pointed out the time of every action of his life. From the left fob he took out a net, almost large enough for a fisherman, but contrived to open and shut like a purse, and served him for the same use. We found therein several massy pieces of yellow metal, which, if they be of real gold, must be of immense value. Having thus, in obedience to your majesty's commands, diligently searched all his pockets, we observed a girdle about his waist made of the hide of some prodigious animal, from which, on the left side, hung a sword of the length of five men, and on the right, a bag or pouch divided into two cells, each cell capable of holding three of your majesty's subjects. In one of these cells were several globes or balls of a most ponderous metal about the bigness of our heads and required a strong hand to lift them. The other cell contained a heap of certain black grains, but of no great bulk or weight, for we could hold about fifty of them in the palm of our hands. This is an exact inventory of what we found about the body of the Man Mountain, who used us with great civility and due respect to Your Majesty's commission." signed and sealed on the fourth day of the eighty-ninth moon of your majesty's auspicious reign, Clefren Freluck, Marcy Freluck. When this inventory was read over to the emperor, he directed me to deliver up the several particulars. He first called for my scimitar, which I took out, scabbard and all. In the meantime, he ordered three thousand of his choicest troops, who then attended him, to surround me at a distance with their bows and arrows just ready to discharge, but I did not observe it, for mine eyes were wholly fixed upon his majesty. He then desired me to draw my scimitar, which, although it had got some rust by the sea-water, was in most parts exceeding bright. I did so, and immediately all the troops gave a shout between terror and surprise, for the sun shone clear, and the reflection dazzled their eyes as I waved the scimitar to and fro in my hand. His majesty, who is a most magnanimous prince, was less daunted than I could expect. He ordered me to return it into the scabbard, 
and cast it on the ground as gently as I could, about six feet from the end of my chain. The next thing he demanded was one of the hollow iron pillars, by which he meant my pocket pistols. I drew it out, and at his desire, as well as I could, expressed to him the use of it and charging it only with powder, which, by the closeness of my pouch, happened to escape wetting in the sea, an inconvenience that all prudent mariners take special care to provide against. I first cautioned the emperor not to be afraid, and then I let it off in the air. The astonishment here was much greater than at the sight of my scimitar. Hundreds fell down as if they had been struck dead, and even the emperor, although he stood his ground, could not recover himself in some time. I delivered up both my pistols in the same manner I had done my scimitar, and then my pouch of powder and bullets, begging him that the former might be kept from fire, for it would kindle with the smallest spark and blow up his imperial palace into the air. I likewise delivered up my watch, which the emperor was very curious to see, and commanded two of his tallest yeomen of the guard to bear it on a pole upon their shoulders, as draymen in England do a barrel of ale. He was amazed at the continual noise it made, and the motion of the minute hand, which he could easily discern, for their sight is much more accurate than ours. He asked the opinions of his learned men about him, which were various and remote, as the reader may well imagine without my repeating, although indeed I could not very perfectly understand them. I then gave up my silver and copper money, my purse with nine large pieces of gold and some smaller ones, my knife and razor, my comb and silver snuff-box, my handkerchief and journal-book. My scimitar, pistols, and pouch were conveyed in carriages to His Majesty's stores, but the rest of my goods were returned to me. I had, as I before observed, one private pocket which escaped their search, wherein there was a pair of spectacles, which I sometimes use for the weakness of mine eyes, a pocket perspective, and several other little conveniences, which being of no consequence to the emperor, I did not think myself bound in honor to discover, and I apprehended they might be lost or spoiled if I ventured them out of my possession. Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift has been narrated by Aaron Ziegler. And while he is not actually British, neither has he lived in the 18th century or ever met a person under six inches tall, as far as he knows. He is, however, the host of the Chop Bard podcast, and is pleased to be involved with Kraft Lit's presentation of Mr. Swift's marvelous book. And I am so pleased to be able to present Aaron to you in his role as narrator of our book. Now, one of the little tidbit things that I wanted to fill you in on as uh, after we listen to the chapter is this. When, when he was being searched, there was actually a specific event that he was trying to ridicule because it is kind of funny the way the guys went through his pockets. And of course, their descriptions of all of the things that they found and their misunderstanding of all of the things that they found reminded me of that text. It was circulating among educational circles uh oh lord 20 30 years ago and i know it was also in reader's digest and it was i i think one of the titles because i have a feeling it went by various titles was uh something about finding the nakrima n-n-a-c-i-r-e-m-a which is american spelled backwards and it was all about you know like in the 2300s it was finding what must have been an apartment in New York City and the circular throne to which people prayed. And it was just a whole bunch of 
ridiculous stuff. And it was, of course, misunderstanding our current world, uh, pointing out how easy it would be to misunderstand the ancient civilizations that we were trying to understand at the time. And, uh, and so there's that kind of similar moment here in, in the little Lilliputians not entirely understanding what it is that they're looking at, because of course it is massively larger than the items in their own world. But this search, uh, there were two guys who were friends of Jonathan Swift's, uh, Bolingbroke and Oxford. And this is not the Bolingbroke who's in Richard II, who Aaron Siegler is talking about. Um, probably related. I haven't actually gone and checked out the genealogy, but mm, wouldn't surprise me if it was same family. Anyway, when, uh, when the Whig government of George I investigated this treaty that Bolingbroke and Oxford had made, um, toward the end of the reign of Queen Anne. It was this secret deal with France that they negotiated. And it was great for the French, and it was okay for England, and these two guys got busted. So George I comes in, busts Bolingbroke and Oxford, and they're regarded as traitors. So they get arrested and searched. And it is, it is thought that Swift is probably making fun of that search by, by how the Lilliputians kind of over-examine and, you know, look at the potential danger in a handkerchief and, oh, what is this? And so they, he's kind of making fun of them that way. But, uh, but there are a couple of, of things that I wanted to make sure you knew. He, he does give the list of what they really are called at the end, just in case you didn't figure it out on your own. But um, he used the word imprimis. I-M-P-R-I-M-I-S. You do see this word from time to time, and it just means in the first place or to begin with. Um, a great piece of coarse cloth was his handkerchief. A sort of dust was a container of snuff. A hollow pillar, pillar of iron was his pistol. Um, transparent metal. They don't know what glass is. So that's news to them. Uh, the thing that he seldom he seldom did anything without consulting it already watches in the early 1700s are that important in the lives of men so here we think that we're attached to a clock or our phone anyway in this case which tells us the time uh and it was not all that much different back in swift's day globes or balls are the bullets uh, black grains those were gunpowder and I think that that is the all of it for this week. Next week, I'm going to do a little bit more background on a writing group that Swift had convened. Uh, they were the ones who provoked each other to write their satires. And, uh, and they were an, an interesting group because their, their attitudes towards the world and their attitudes towards satire itself affects how Swift writes this book. And while so far it has remained for the most part a travel story up until now, chapter three, which we get into next week, really does begin specifically satiric finger pointing towards the world that surrounded him. So you'll you'll hear more of that next week. And uh and and 
each time he switches location, we get another chapter or two that's laying the groundwork as though this were a real travel story. And then we get into the satire. So this this pattern will continue. Um, the other thing that I thought you might find curious, there seems to be evidence that there were people who really did believe the story was true. Just like War of the Worlds, when Orson Welles did the radio broadcast in what, 1938, 1932? I don't remember when it was. Um, that broadcast, the you know, the legend is that people jumped out of windows because they thought the Martians had landed. And while I don't know for a fact, I have not checked Snopes on that because I only just thought of it. Uh, But while I don't know if that is true or not, I do know that there are people who say, who have said, they thought that was real. So, same thing happened with Swift. Because when you have a really good writer writing a story like this, it would be very easy for people to go, oh my gosh, you're kidding. Guys were six inches tall. That's amazing. Because of course, they didn't know the whole world. It's like when my son, when my son said, hey, they found a giant squid. I said, there is no such thing as a giant squid. It's a, it's a myth. And he said, no, here, look on YouTube. And lo and behold, there's the giant squid. So, you know, we don't know a whole lot about the ocean and we don't know a whole lot and they didn't know a whole lot about their world so we're even in my book and on that note i am going to leave you i am going to go get ready for Marilyn sheep and wool and for having a birthday and all sorts of fabulous things and uh i will catch you on the flip side take care i'll talk to you soon bye there are many ways to listen to craftlet you can listen on your smartphone via the stitcher radio app You can subscribe free through iTunes, or you can download and listen to the iPhone, iTouch, and Android app, where you'll receive occasional extras for the show. Craftlet is supported in a number of ways. Knit Circus, the free e-newsletter featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. Also, the What Would Madame Defarge Knit series... Volume 2, What Else Would Madame Defarge Knit, is now in pre-orders. You can find out more from the links in the show notes at craftlit.com. Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories from the heart and home. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative publishing books, not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. If you would like to help support the show, please know there are various ways to donate. And all of them help keep Craftlet and Just the Books free and available to you whenever you feel the need for a good story. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.